Well, I got to thinking after uh, last week that I probably should ex have explained, especially to those who may be new to Melanie Park, that what we're doing over the next couple of Sundays is not very typical from what we usually do. Uh, normally, we're going through a book of the Bible like we did in 1 Corinthians or like we'll do in a few weeks with the one another's. But over the next couple of weeks, uh, it's my hope to, to share a little bit of what we experienced this summer when we went to Israel, but to try and present it in a way that it's helpful and meaningful to you as a church family. So that's at least my attempt. Um, if you remember last week, we kind of took that 30,000-foot view, that big picture of the Old Testament story. Uh, and the main purpose of that was to try and understand how God established the nation of Israel and the specific purpose that he gave to them. Now, here's where we get to the test, right? We did that by talking about four people, three societies, and a period of, uh, of silence, right? So let's see if we can remember. I'll give you a hint. The four people, A-J-M-J, all right? Who are they? Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and Joshua. Very good. All right, so it started with Abraham. Called out of Ur the Chaldeans, and that's important because we saw him as a man just like you and I. Nothing special about him, but God chose him, and he made a promise to him. That promise included a land, a seed, and a blessing. He told him that he would make him a great nation, and that nation would exist in a specific piece of land. And from that people would come a descendant, and through that descendant there would be a blessing for all the families of the earth. I told you and, and, and believe this to be true, that that promise that God made to Abraham, that unconditional, unilateral promise, is the most significant promise made in the history of the world. And that promise was protected by Joseph. Remember, his brother sold him into slavery, but he went on to tell them what you intended for harm, God used for good. Because Joseph was raised up within that Egyptian society to a place of influence and power. And he was able to protect his family from a famine that would have certainly killed them. And so Joseph was the person who protected that family. And not only did they, he provide for them, but they thrived within that protection. And really it's during this season that they became that great nation. So much so that they became a threat to the Egyptians. So looking at this nation of Israel and how powerful and numerous they'd become, they said, we've got to control them. And so they made them slaves. And so God brings Moses to deliver the nation of Israel out of that slavery. We all know about the plagues and that miraculous deliverance across the Red Sea. But what we also talked about was how Moses was key in giving them identity as a people of God by providing the instruction of the law and the sacrificial system, to set them apart as a, a unique nation and give them a purpose. Remember what that purpose was? To be a light to the nations. To take the salvation of God to the ends of the earth, is what Isaiah says. Well, Moses led them up to the land. It was Joshua who would lead, lead them into the land. And it was under his leadership that they would occupy that land as God had promised, as that great nation as God had promised. And from there we learn that they fulfilled their purpose and lived happily ever after. That's not what happened. <laughs> they got into the land and this is where the three societies came into play. Anarchy, royalty, and captivity. Anarchy because it says in scripture that every man did what was right in their own eyes. It's total chaos. The 
it felt good, you did it. They, instead of being set apart, wanted to be like everybody else. And so they compromised their faith and what God had instructed them to do and became like all the nations around them. So much so that they decided that they wanted a king. Why? Because everybody else had a king. And in doing so, they rejected the rule of God in their life and elected for themselves a worldly king. And over time, uh, that proved to be a, a major failure because these kings were ruled by selfish pride. And instead of uniting this kingdom that God had provided, this great nation in this land, he divide, they divided into a northern and southern kingdom. And soon after that happened, they were held captive. In 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire came in and destroyed that northern kingdom of Israel, taking them into captivity and dispersing them throughout the land. And then in 586, the Babylonians came in to Jerusalem, destroying the, the temple and the city and, and taking those people into captivity in exile in Babylon. And they were there for 70 years until another king named Cyrus, the king of the Persians, had a new policy. And his policy was to allow the people to go back to their land as long as they asked the God that they served to pray for him and the rule of his empire. <laughs> and so the, the Jews that were held captive go back into Jerusalem and, and they rebuild that city in that very important place, the, the walls around the city, the, the temple and the sacrifices and they became that people that God had intended them to be. And there they lived happily ever after. <laughs> no. Another period of silence, 400 years. This is the time frame between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And even though there was biblical silence during these 400 years, there were some amazing things happening on the world scene. And we talked about some of those. Alexander the Great, who came in and provided that Greek culture and and uh, unified this empire only to be conquered by an even greater empire, the Romans. And they established on what, Ro what the Greeks had done and, and built highway systems and, and commerce that was, took place throughout their, their empire. It was magnificent cities that were built under their leadership. And it was in this context that Jesus would come onto the scene. It's important to realize that that. Israel was not a sovereign nation. They lived as a people allowed to function in their identity, but under the rule of Rome. And it was in this context that Jesus would come onto the scene. And that's what we'll look at together this morning. So before we do, let's go to the Lord in, in prayer. God, as we come to you, we want to just take a moment to realize all the things that you have done, the great things that you have done. You've been so faithful to your promises. You've been so faithful to your people. Father, as we continue that story of understanding how you established the nation of Israel and gave them a purpose, help us appreciate the significance of how that promise that you made was ultimately fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and yet how they stood in observance of that promise fulfilled and turned and walked away rejecting the Messiah that came for them and ultimately for that blessing for all the families of the earth. And as we hear this story, may we see our story in the midst of this story of Israel. 
Give us a perspective and an understanding that brings glory and honor to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, so let's begin in Bethlehem. This is the city where Jesus was born. Luke records that event, and this is what he says. Now in the day, in, in those days, there was a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was, who was engaged to him and was with child. While there, they, the days uh, were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. This, of course, is Luke's account of the birth of Christ. The, the thing that I want you to realize as we look at that account is that Jesus should have been born in Nazareth. That's where he would eventually be raised, and that's the logical place for him to have been born. The last thing they wanted to do was to put a woman who was nine months pregnant on the back of a donkey for a four-day journey uphill through treacherous terrain to Bethlehem. It's not what they would have wanted to do, but there's a couple of reasons why that happened. The first we see is the fact that there was a law that required them, according to Caesar. He was taking a census, and everybody had to go to the town of their forefathers, and for Joseph, that was King David from the town of Bethlehem. Now, that's important because it's the first opportunity we see of the ongoing fulfillment of Jesus as the promised Messiah. So they travel to Bethlehem according to the law of Caesar, but there's a second reason, and it's more important. It was a requirement of God according to his scripture. If you go back to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, an Old Testament passage that says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth and from long ago, from days of eternity. So back in the Old Testament, there was this well-known prophecy of the Messiah being born through the house of David in this city of Bethlehem. And they knew this promise. John records an event where they're discussing this reality as they're trying to understand who is Jesus. And this is their discussion. It says, others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not for, to come from Galilee, is he? They're thinking, this guy's from Nazareth. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Everybody knew that, who was looking for and anticipating the arrival of the promised Messiah. I want you to understand that God promised that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And this was one of many of those promises fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So he was born in Bethlehem, but he would ultimately be raised in Nazareth. What I want you to see about Nazareth is I kind of had in my mind this kind of flat little farm town. Nazareth is actually very mountainous. And I don't know if you can tell here, but here's a city street way down here. 
and you can see how the houses go all the way up the side. And, and that's a lot of what Nazareth was like. It was this huge change in terrain. And so this is the city that Jesus would have grown up in. It was kind of like the, the Tulia of the Middle East. <laughs> a little nondescript farm town. And that's where Jesus grew up. We were there and went to a place called Nazareth Village. It's kind of a neat little place because they reenacted some of what would have taken during the time of Christ in that first century village. And so they had a guy who was, had a donkey and he was pulling this sled behind him. And underneath that sled are stalks of wheat. And so he's threshing wheat, knocking the wheat off of those stalks. And then he would come and he would shovel it up in the air so that the wind would blow the chaff away and the wheat would fall to the ground, and they'd collect it. And that's how they did it during that first century. We saw other things going on. There was a carpenter who happened to be named Joseph. Uh, uh, there was a shepherd, and then somebody who was making wool uh, out of, uh, the, the, from the sheep, and they would use dyes from plants to give colors to that wool. So these are things that would have happened in that first century time of Christ. So it's not... Uh, 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 unusual to consider the fact that as Jesus grew up in this town that this might in fact be where he begins his ministry and that is true when it came time for Jesus to begin his teaching ministry he started in Nazareth and as would become his custom he would go to a synagogue that looked similar to this they're kind of all shaped very much the same kind of a, a square have steps that are actually places where people sit and then the rabbi or the one teaching would come up to the front. He would stand to read the Torah, the scroll, and then he would sit to teach. And that was how that worked. And so on this particular day, Jesus goes to a synagogue much like this. And Luke records what happened on this day as Jesus begins his ministry in Nazareth. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to a synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all those in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's important to realize about the Jewish tradition is that the Torah was read regularly in the synagogue based on a calendar. Much like you and I might read a daily devotional. On a certain day, you read a certain passage. And that's what's true for them. Just so happened, on this particular day, that when Jesus reads the devotional, it's a messianic prophecy. Isn't that ironic? So he reads that prophecy, sits down to teach, and the only thing he says is today, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your presence. What he's saying, I am the promised Messiah. That's what he tells the people in Nazareth and you might expect that those who have been watching and praying would stand and rejoice with this announcement <laughs> but instead they get in an argument and here's what happens next when they heard these things all in the synagogue were filled with wrath 
And they rose up and drove him, Jesus, out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. People who knew him best, his uncompromising integrity, his flawless character, even the fact that he was the one who read this messianic prophecy on this particular day and tells them clearly, I am that promised Messiah. Instead of rejoicing, they tried to kill him. It's how the ministry of Jesus began, and ultimately, it's how it would end. So Jesus, having been rejected in Nazareth, goes to Galilee. You can kind of see the path he would have taken. He's actually going downhill in elevation quite a bit to go from Nazareth to to Galilee. This is where I enjoyed my time the most. It's where I felt most comfortable. This is the place of farmers and fishermen, my kind of people. And it was a beautiful place uh, to be. We stayed in Tiberias, which is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and this was the view outside of our window of our hotel. It was an amazing place. On, On the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee is a very important city known as Capernaum. This is kind of showing you the Sea of Galilee, and if you'll look at that bunch of trees, that's where this city of Capernaum uh, is located. What's important about Capernaum is that uh, this was kind of the headquarters of Jesus' ministry, and much of the ruins of that city still remain. So what you're looking at here are actual stones from houses and streets during the first century and the time of Christ, still standing in this city today. Here's another picture of some of those same stones. You see it's kind of dark in color. It's because those are basalt rocks, which are common in that area. But that's what the city was made of. It was an important city because from this city, Jesus called a number of his disciples. Andrew, Peter, James, John. They were all fishermen, and this was a big port for fishermen to bring in their their catches. And so very likely, Jesus stood on the shore there in Capernaum looking out to his disciples when he told them to cast on the other side of the boat. This is where it would have taken place. But it was not only an important city to Jesus, it was also an important city to the Romans. So if you go in, you'll see a lot of Roman artifacts within this city of Capernaum. Um, The one on the left is actually inside of a a synagogue. You can kind of see some of the Corinthian structures there. On the right, you've heard the scripture that talks about having a millstone tied to your neck and dropped into the ocean, that's a millstone. So that'll tell you a little bit about the result of that particular <laughs> predicament. But Capernaum was the place where, where Jesus called many of his disciples. In fact, the reason it was important to Rome relates to the disciples because this was like a, I want you to think of it like a toll booth. Because of where Capernaum was located on the north of Galilee, when people came in from the north, they would come through Capernaum. And in Capernaum was a Roman guard, and that guard was there to collect taxes. So when you gave your money to the tax collector in Capernaum, guess who it was? Matthew. Matthew was the tax collector, taking the toll there in Capernaum. So again, another one of Jesus' disciples. An important ministry, as Jesus would kind of use this as a home base. But we also know that he traveled... Uh, All throughout the region, the scripture tells us that he went to to synagogues, as was his custom, all throughout the region of Galilee. And one of those cities that we feel certain he would have visited 
is the city known as Magdala. Magdala is just around, not, it's kind of in between Tiberias and at Capernaum, not too far. You can see the two from, from, the, from the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. Magdala is important because that was the home of Mary Magdalene. Here's what's very interesting about this particular city. Back in 2009, okay, so less than 10 years ago, a company came in and said, hey, this would be a great place to build a hotel. So they planned to, to build a hotel right there on the shore of Galilee. So as you would expect, they begin to excavate the ground. And when they do, they start to uncover artifacts. So they stopped the building project to then discover what these artifacts are. As it turns out, it was a first century synagogue. This was a synagogue that existed during the time of Christ in the city of Mary Magdalene and a place Jesus would have been. And so what was interesting about this particular synagogue is that it had been preserved because apparently when Rome came in to destroy the cities, uh, they had taken those pillars and kind of covered up the synagogue because when they uncovered it, they found that a lot of this existed as it did back in the first century. These are original tiles on the floor of that synagogue. Little half-inch squares of tiles that are original to that first century synagogue. The other thing that they found, and we learned that this was there just a month before we got there, these beautiful frescas that would have been on the side of the walls of the synagogue, the, the colors or dyes made from plants in that area. So a beautiful, beautiful synagogue. The other thing that they found was this, they call it the Magdala stone. You'll notice that it's white, and everything else in that area is basalt, it's black. And so this stone was not made in this area, it was from Jerusalem. That's Jerusalem stone, it's white. And so like I told you earlier, this is the place from which the Torah would be placed. They would stand to read, sit to teach, and very likely, Jesus stood in this synagogue and taught from that stone in Magdala. It's an incredible place, probably one of my favorite places, because it was one of the few places that we could go and with some certainty say, this is where Jesus was at. Right here in this place. We also know that he traveled just not only in that area, just north of Capernaum is a slope of a hill known as the Mount of the Beatitudes. So the Sermon on the Mount took place right here. This was probably my most special moment of the trip. I'm already thinking about it. But what was special about this trip was that we were there uh, first thing in the morning. So we were there before most anybody else was. It was cool quiet, hear the birds chirping, and I had the opportunity <laughs> to stand in this place and to read the words that Jesus would have spoken from this very place. You recognize the words, it's from Matthew, when he began this sermon by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus traveled all throughout this region. This is the place where he would have fed the 5,000. This is the place where he would have healed the centurion's son. This is the place where he would have raised the widow's son back to life after he had died. You remember the story in the, Old, in the New Testament where they took the paralytic and, and lowered him down through that straw roof? It was in Capernaum. 
So as you might expect, it was in this region that the popularity of Jesus really began to grow. In fact, I was reading in the Gospel of Mark just this week on my own time, and I read about the account of where people came from. It says they came from Tyre and Sidon, which are on the Mediterranean coastline. It said they came from Jerusalem and Idumea, which is uh, Hebron, just south of Jerusalem. And then all the region. So people were coming in through all of Israel to hear Jesus teach and to see these miracles that he would perform. And, and so the crowds and the attention were getting larger and larger until Jesus confronted the reason for their interest. And this is what he says. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate and the, lo- the loaves, and you were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for uh, on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Who is he referring to? Himself. He's doing the very same thing in Galilee that he did when he began his ministry in Nazareth. He is presenting himself as the fulfillment of that promised Messiah. It's just in these sermons that Jesus would explicitly tell them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. He would say, I and the Father are one. So the ministry of Jesus was, was significant in this place. But here's what's interesting. They could accept the evidence of his miraculous power, but they were unwilling to accept that he was the promised Messiah. So just like in, Gal- er, in Nazareth, in Galilee, they rejected him. They deserted him. All those crowds disappeared. It's recorded in John when he says, as a result of this, as he begins to teach the things that I just shared with you, it says that many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered them, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's the only reason that they were willing to follow him because they believed that he is who he said he was, the promised Messiah, the Son of God. He and the Father were one. Everybody else heard those same words and said, that's more than I can accept. I'm done. So rejected in Galilee, he goes north. And just to kind of show you, since there's so many lines, here is uh, Capernaum. He goes up north through Kadesh, into a city known as Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is an interesting city. As you can see, uh, there was a lot of water. This is a natural spring, kind of like we saw in Dan last week. This is one of the springs that fi- fills the, the Jordan River. Okay? I think originally, if I understand it correctly, the water from this spring actually flowed from inside a cave there on the side of that mountain. Now, the reason that this was important to the Romans is because it was like a pagan worship center. If you go and look at the side of this mountain, you're going to see these carvings 
throughout the side of the mountain. And what they would do is they would place these idols, gods and goddesses, Roman gods and goddesses, all throughout the side of this mountain. In fact, inside this cave, presumably where this water originally flowed out of, there was an altar. And these were sacrifices that were made to these pagan gods. Here's what's interesting. Having just been rejected in Galilee, now traveling with his 12 disciples up to the place of Caesarea Philippi, in the midst of this pagan worship center, surrounded by all these false gods, it's in this context that Jesus looks at his disciples and asks them the question, who do you say that I am? Out of all that you see around you, out of all the things that people believe to be true, what is true for you? And it was in this context that we learn of Peter's confession. You remember it. Now, when Jesus had come into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am in the midst of all these false gods? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ the son of the living God. The only reason you would have stayed and followed is if you believed that was true. Otherwise, you would turn away. It was in this same context that Jesus would begin to tell his disciples about things yet to come. Shortly after this confession from Peter, this is what Jesus tells his disciples. He says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised up on the third day. This was the beginning of Jesus explaining things that were going to happen, so that when they did, that in some ways the disciples would know that this is what Jesus had prophesied would take place. So before arriving in Jerusalem, now that he leaves from north in Caesarea Philippi, long journey, he travels through a city known as Bethany. Anybody think of anything that was important in Bethany? Mary and Martha and their brother, Lazarus. So this is the raising of Lazarus. Now, before we think about that, I want to remind you that this is not the first time that Jesus would have raised someone from the dead. I already told you about the widow's son. There was Jairus' daughter. So at least on two occasions, he had raised somebody from the dead, but this time was unique. Here you'll see the, the path that he would have taken as he leaves Caesarea Philippi, travels to the city of Bethany, uh, which is, where am I? Right here, down on the bottom, before going into Jerusalem. You remember he delays, doesn't he? Knowing Lazarus is sick, he's gotten that word. Knowing that Lazarus is likely going to die, he waits. And he waits long enough for Lazarus to die, but not only that, to be wrapped in burial clothes, to be placed in a tomb, so he'd been there four days. And that gave plenty of time for all the, the friends and family to come in because you just don't go across the street. They're traveling for days to get to this location, and so they've had time to arrive. Well, Jesus enters into this context of these people with Lazarus dead and everyone mourning. And you know what happens next. This is what is recorded in Scripture. It says, so they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that. You always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. 
But when he heard and said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand, hand and foot with wrappings, and with his face was wrapped all around with cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what had been done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. This was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. This was the event that told the religious leaders, if we don't do something, everyone's going to start following him. And so they made a plan, and that's recorded in John chapter 11, just a few verses later. It says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, that the whole, that the whole nation not perish. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. That's how his ministry began. That's how his ministry would end. So we know that Jesus spoke very often to the Pharisees and religious leaders. And it's my opinion, is, my opinion is this. I think that the response of the Jewish leadership is perhaps the greatest apologetic for who Christ is as the promised Messiah, one with God. Because they understood what he said. They understood that he said he could forgive sins. They understood that he did miracles that were reserved for the promised Messiah alone. For example, the man born blind, healed. They knew in their scripture that said that the only person who would perform that miracle would be the promised Messiah. They knew that. You'll remember that account in scripture, how they interview the, the blind man who had been healed. They interview his parents, and they go through all this ordeal. Why? Because they knew what that miracle meant. They knew explicitly that he said, I and the Father are one. So either Jesus is, in fact, the promised Messiah, and we would bow to worship him, or he is demon-possessed, and we must vow to kill him. And so they chose to believe the latter and made a plan to eliminate him. So we had an opportunity to travel on the road that Jesus would have taken into Jerusalem when he left Bethany. Now you'll recall that plan that the religious leaders had had kind of a hiccup. Because when Jesus first traveled into Jerusalem, they welcomed him like a king. You remember? The triumphal entry. It says, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're welcoming him like a king. And so there's all this attention being pointed towards Jerusalem and towards Jesus as that promised king. This is the road that they would, this is uh, Doug's triumphal entry. You can see him underneath the bougainvillea there, Doug Kennedy. But this is the road that he would have traveled. It wouldn't have been paved. You wouldn't have seen walls. But the path that he would have taken would have been on this road. And this is how we walked into Jerusalem for the first time when we entered into the city. Just to kind of give you a picture of what that would have looked like for him to travel from Bethany. Here's Bethany right here. So he goes on the top of this hill past the Garden of Gethsemane, which we'll talk about shortly, 
down into the Kidron Valley and then to the eastern side of Jerusalem. That's the triumphal entry and how Jesus would have entered into the city. But Jesus knew that like everywhere else he'd been, they would be real intrigued by his miracles, not too keen on his message. They were just not willing to believe that he was the promised Messiah. And so on the night of his betrayal, he went to that garden that he passed on his way into Jerusalem that day, the Garden of Gethsemane. We had an opportunity to go to that place, and it was one of those places that we walked into, and it felt like this was real. These olive trees are ancient. No telling how old they are. They really don't know because they don't really die. If you look closely, you'll see they kind of just sprout new branches out of this very ancient root system. And so it's very possible that somewhere within this olive grove that exists today, Jesus would have gone to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was an incredible, sober moment um, for us to walk through that place. But it was here that Jesus uh, prayed until the soldiers led by Jesus came and took him away. Remember, it was Caiaphas, the high priest, who had the idea to begin with that we need to eliminate him. Since we don't believe he's the promised Messiah, the only logical thing to do is to crucify him. And so they took him to Caiaphas' house. They know where Caiaphas lived because of architectural digs. And underneath his house is this dungeon. You remember, they came late at night and then kept him in Caiaphas' house till early the next morning when this charade of trials would begin. Now, was Jesus in this exact location? We don't know. But it would have been something like this and very possibly this very place. This is at the base of Caiaphas' house. This is where they would have taken Jesus. Again, after this charade of, of trials that were illegal, according to both Jewish and Roman law, they came to their conclusion. Blasphemy. Because they understood what Jesus was saying. He was claiming to be God. And it was something they were unwilling to accept. And so the only natural thing to do was to eliminate one who said such things. And so the sentence was crucifixion. They led him down, as we know it today, as the Via Della Rosa. This is the path that Jesus would have taken as he walked to the place where he would be crucified. There weren't too many people in the streets that day, so we had a good view of, of this particular path that Jesus would have taken. There's some uh, debate on where he was actually crucified. I have my own opinion. <laughs> And I think it's this place. It's known as the, the uh, Hill of the Skull. And you can kind of see here, they did excavations of uh, the rock that was used to build the walls and much of the city of Jerusalem was excavated from around that area. And this is one of those places. And so this is kind of a quarry. And you kind of see a little bit of an eye. And there used to be a nose that has since fallen off. But if you look at it, especially when you're there, it looks like a skull. That's why they call it the Hill of the Skull. And so... This is the place where very possibly they would have taken Jesus to be crucified. One of the reasons that I think this is likely the case is because of its location. It's right outside the city gate. Here's the Damascus gate here. And so here it is on this prominent hill in an intersection of very busy traveled streets. And so if the Romans wanted to make, if they wanted to ridicule criminals to put, be put on public display so that people could come by and mock them, this was a great place to do it. And I think this is very likely where Jesus would have been crucified. 
So the religious leaders had accomplished their goal. They used their influence to sway the people who had just days earlier welcomed Jesus as king to now call to crucify him as a criminal. That's where we'll pick up next time, but before we leave this morning, I want us to consider something together. It's easy for us when we think about the nation of Israel to point our fingers and to say, how could they have done that? How could they crucify Jesus after all the miracles that he performed, after all the teachings that he had given them? How in the world could they turn and look the other way? Well, let me suggest to you this morning that I don't think we're all that different. Sure, they heard from Jesus from time to time when he would come to their city. But you and I have the full counsel of God's word. From all of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament, including things yet to come. The full revelation of God's word in your hands. And let me ask you, do we let this truly guide our life? Or are we similar to the Israelites where we have so much and yet very often we choose and go our own way? So were we that different? Well, some of you may argue, but yeah, they had miracles. <laughs> yeah, if, if, if I'd have seen those miracles, certainly I would have been a believer. I wouldn't have turned their back. Okay. Let me remind you of this. Those miracles all had a purpose. Every miracle Jesus performed was used to validate a message that he was giving. So his power over disease, power over nature, power over Satan, his power over sin, all those miracles were possible only by God alone. See, the very purpose of the miracles of Jesus was to prove and reveal God's presence among them. That's why they existed. To prove and reveal God's presence among them. So let me ask you, do we have evidence of those same miracles happening today? Let me take you back to what we just read in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? God's presence is revealed in you. You are the miracle of God's power put on display. You are the proof of His presence in this world because of His Spirit that resides in you. See, it's easy for us to look at the Israelites and to point our fingers and shake our heads and think, I can't believe they would have done something like that when they had so much. And I'd like to suggest to you this morning that we have more. We have more. And yet so often, we're just as easily inclined to have the riches of what he's provided and still choose to go our own way. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us just to take some time to consider that for each of our hearts personally, myself included. Because I'm going to make an assumption. I'm going to make an assumption that for every person in this room, myself included, 
there's plenty of evidences of God's provision and faithfulness that I have seen and chosen to walk the other way. That I know, but I'm willing to bow to. And I'm going to assume that that's true for everyone here this morning. And so I want to just take a couple of minutes to lead us in a time of prayer before the Lord where we take those things, acknowledging them, and then trusting that we are going before Him in the throne of grace. And let's just see what He can do in our lives when we take that posture. Let's pray together. Father, it's easy to uh, look at this story of how you so faithfully fulfilled your promise, so repeatedly presenting yourself through the person and work of Christ as the promised Messiah, the fulfillment to bless all the families of the earth through him. We see that being played out in Scripture and all the evidences of that truth, and we can easily look at the Israelites and point our fingers and how shameful it is for them to have seen so much and yet chosen to do their own thing. And this morning we're going to confess together as people of God that we have done the same. You have been faithful to promise, to the promises of your provision. You're, you are the way, the truth, and the life. You've made your presence known through the spirit that resides in your people in this world so father we want to confess that selfish rejection in the midst of your faithful provision of going our own way justifying our own opinion trying to find life outside of you i have to believe that even this morning there are those who are in a dark place And I want to invite them on your behalf to come to the light. To be honest, to be sincere, and to be humble. To recognize, as they've surely experienced, that that path away from you is a path of destruction. It destroys relationships. It destroys identity and who we are. It destroys everything that you've created us to be. Because that's what the enemy wants to do. Still kill, and destroy. I pray this morning as they see that a path towards you leads to redemption. That it is taking something that was wrong and making it right. Paying for something with a great price. And that's what you've done when you've redeemed us. This morning, I know that each person here, as they examine their own heart, they have a choice. A choice to turn and walk away and follow a path that leads to destruction or to choose to walk towards you, to bow before you, and to find redemption. God, you oppose the proud. You give grace to the humble. And I pray this morning that this room is filled with humble people who recognize your faithful love, your mercies that are new every morning, and that a broken and contrite heart you have never, nor will you ever, refuse. So, Father, we pray together as a church family that you would create in us a clean heart. 
that you would renew a steadfast spirit in us so that our lives really do demonstrate the faith of what it means to follow the one who brings salvation to the world. And that it would so radically change our life that we would live in a way that we fulfill what you ultimately intended for your people to begin with. To be a light to the nations and to tell of your salvation to the ends of the earth. Pray this morning that we be that people because we are humble before you, recognizing your mercies and grace. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we pray. Amen. Have a great day.